This is episode 19 with Australian swimming great Kieran Perkins. Talking with TK, I'm your host, Tristan Cannell. Another bumper episode today with Australian swimming legend, Kieran Perkins. Kieran, one of my absolute idols growing up, still remember his back to the wall performance at the 1996 Atlantic Games when pretty much everyone counted him off. He came in eighth, qualifying eighth in the to the final and still remember absolutely no one gave him a chance, a shot at claiming a second gold medal after he won in the Barcelona games, but I still remember I was about 12 or 13 years old at the time and just sitting down in front of the TV, actually I was sitting on the floor because, you know, after watching him in the 92, he was technically one of my heroes, so I really wanted him to win, so I remember cheering him on from start to finish and it was just such a great race and just something that's continued to inspire me and continue to inspire Australians for just generations and generations to come. But before we get Kieran on, just a big thank you for everyone tuning into the show, subscribing via iTunes, and leaving me five-star reviews. I'd love to get any feedback that you've got, so send them through to Tristan at TalkingWithTK.com, or connect with me on social media. Twitter, I'm at TNellFitness. Uh, Facebook, I'm at TalkingWithTK, or Instagram, I'm Tristan Cannell. So please tag me in any posts, share it with your family and friends, and let me know what you think of the show. But without any further ado, here is the great Kieran Perkins. My special guest is Kieran Perkins. Kieran is a legend of the pool, which included being a four-time Olympic medalist and former world record holder. As one of the greatest long-distance swimmers ever, Kieran won two Olympic golds in 1992 and 1996, and also a silver in the year 2000. I welcome Kieran Perkins. Kieran, welcome to Talking with TK. Thanks, Tristan. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Kieran, you know, you were my idols actually growing up. I still remember sitting down on the floor, uh, watching your 1996. You know, you had your back to the wall. And for me, it was just one of the most inspiring moments that I've seen in a sporting event, probably with uh, Kathy Freeman, my, my two favourites actually. But what I really want to start with first is kind of your transition away from swimming. So I know you've been with NAB now for a number of years eight plus years and you just moved into a new role. In terms of your corporate life now, what has been your, your biggest challenge? Oh, that's a good question. Look, I think um, adapting to uh, to the environment is probably the more difficult part. You know, when you're in a in a sporting environment, in a team um, where you're surrounded by a very large group of people whose you know, whole reason for being is to support you to to, to be the best that you can be, 
it's a very positive, um, very um, supportive, exceptional kind of an environment, which of course is completely unnatural. But that's that's I mean, that's what sports is all about, and why you see you know the exceptional things you do in that in that context. Moving into a corporate environment, though, it's obviously not at all like that. You're dealing with a much broader range of attitudes, uh, motivations, goals, um, and and as a consequence, you 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 do actually have to be a lot more willing to deal with a much broader range of attitudes and um, and influences and, and be able to navigate your way through that to, to use bits that matter and to let go of the parts that don't. And um, and in many ways, it's uh, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a, an environment that requires more resilience. It just requires a different type of resilience because some of the things that you're facing into are stuff that you would just never imagine in um, a sporting world that you'd ever have to contend with. Uh, Kieran, you, you're in a management role now. How much in terms of influences, because I know you've had some great influences in terms of coaching, such as Mr. John Carew and also the Australian coaches. You've had some great teammates. You came through a really golden era of swimming in Australia. Mm. How much of that yeah. do you use now in, in your own job? Oh, look, lots. You know, I think the thing that, that, that's always really intriguing is that, um, you know, we... Well, I confront people who make the assumption that because I was an individual athlete, I, probably, I wouldn't have much idea about teamwork, um, you know, high-performing teams and how they operate, etc. But the reality is that, you know, I, as you said, I came through the sport in a golden time when we had, um, you know, a head coach in Don Talbot, um, team management, and then the team coaches who all, you know, had a really high-order commitment to recognising the strength and, and, and value of team and, and how... Australia as a whole would not only, um, you know, excel if the team environment was strong, but we'd be able to actually, you know, deliver heights of performance that no one could have ever imagined possible. And, and, you know, again, because of that kind of unnatural environment in sport, not everything translates directly, but the, 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 the concepts, the requirements, um, the things that you need to do to engage people to get them to see you know, as, as, as you might say, that sort of beacon on the hill that we're all working towards and understanding why it matters to be, um, you know, put the team first and the business first. Uh, and all of those things really do matter. And so those coaches that I interacted with and, the, you know, the attitudes that I, I, I've taken away from that, absolutely, you know, I mean, I use them every day. Um, uh, and, and it does always... Um, you know, surprise me how much value there is for me to actually sort of stop every now and again and just think about, you know, the context of those days and some of the things that I experienced and saw and did and um, and bring them back out again because it's pretty easy to take it for granted, right? You know, I think it's for all of us it's easy yeah. to just move through life doing what you're doing. You're focused on the here and now and, and, and often, the, you know, the lessons and the value of the past, um, you know, you just take them for granted or you don't really think deeply about them and, um, you know, doing that every now and again has actually been highly valuable to me because, um, you know, I do have uh, a depth of knowledge and experience which, um, you know, if it's not given room to um, shine and, and, and I don't take the time and effort to bring that forward, then it's a, an enormous waste. So. Yeah. Actually, I spoke to Michael Klim the other day and he said when he was coming through his career, you were one of the people that he really looked up to. So in terms of that, what was your actual role during that golden period for the rest of the squad? 
Um, that's very nice of Michael say that. I didn't know. Um, look, it, it's interesting because, um, you know, I, in many ways I just did what I did. And I think one of yeah. the, the really sort of seminal moments that I, I think about, you know, when I, when I think back on my career, um, actually happened when I retired. Uh, I was yeah. a little bit, um, um, I was always a little bit nonplussed as why I wasn't ever a team captain or sort of promoted as being one of those, um, you know, those people who, who led the team, as it were. And um, and then when I retired, it sort of didn't matter anymore. I actually fronted Don Talbot about it and said, mate, you know what, what's the go? You know, I, I wasn't a bad teammate. Why was I never actually... <laughs> Pretty good. Even, yeah, even just asked to be, you know, to be a team captain or see what I wanted to do. And he, and he sort of smiled at me and, and, and stuck his hand on my shoulder and said, mate, you're kidding me, right? Do you not realise that the way you behaved, the professionalism that you showed, and the attitude that you took into everything that you did all of the time showed infinitely more leadership than you could have ever done by being the person with the title? And he said, and apart from that, I also didn't want to burden you with the extra responsibility because you had work to do. And um, and you know that was that was really quite extraordinary for me because I'd never. I mean, I've never had anyone say that to me before, and it, and it really did highlight to me, you know, what what leadership is, because we so often look for it to be um, associated with a title, a hierarchy, a responsibility. Um, but the the reality is, is that leadership happens every day, in the way that we behave, the way that we act, the the attitudes that we put forward, the you know, the the, the support we show each other, um, and you know. I don't. I don't know that I go so far as saying it becomes this thing that you're always conscious of and you is a burden. But I think it's something that you've got to be aware of and you've got to recognise that um, people are always watching and um, you know you can um, allow that that responsibility to sit comfortably and just be a part of you know the landscape of who you are and what you do. Um, uh, and and then you know likely be very successful or, or not and um, you know it is one of those things that I sort of marvel at sometimes and just see people that um, yeah you know athletes and things who behave badly or you know do things that they shouldn't and you know the the, the this kind of di- dialogue that suggests that they're um, well there's many reasons why it can happen but lots of excuses are made along the way and. Um, you know, one of the ones that gets thrown out all the time or often is that, you know, they, they never ask to be a role model. You know, they're just not yeah, the people. Yeah. It's like, well, you know what? That's actually not true. If you want to perform at the highest level and be paid to be a part of um, success in something like that, you knew before you got into it that people would be watching, that you'd be a part of, um, yeah, exactly. um, you know, the, the, the societal uh, view of what high performance is and what excellence is and, um, you know, you you really do have a responsibility to recognise that. And as I said, it's not not because you have to then, you know, spend your whole life paranoid and behave in a, in a weird or different way. But you need to recognise that it, it matters and it's important. And if you do that, I think most people, uh, if you can accept that, it's, it's certainly a lot easier to contend with. Yeah, well, that reflection was that something passed on down by your parents? Um, I look. Not not very directly, but certainly um, there's, there's no doubt that their expectations of of you know my brother and I um, as parents influenced all of that pretty dramatically. I think um, 
you know, my, my parents, Mr. Carew, who, you know, was, was, was accepted as my coach because my parents were comfortable that he had similar values and, and attitudes to them. Um, yep. and others, you know, these people have all had big influence. And I think that recognition of, um, you know, your accountability to be a, 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 a moral and appropriate, you know, member of society. Um, but you're not some special thing that is exempt from, um, you know, those standards that we all are expected to live by in a, in a society um, yep. is an important thing. And, you know, they, you know, I don't think it mattered whether I would have been a successful athlete or not, um, you know, that, that kind of um, expectation on behaviour was always there. So, you know, that was... Um, it was probably something they had to reinforce a little bit more forcefully at times when you start to become famous and successful. You know, every now, every now and again, there might be these little moments where you begin to believe your own press, but um, thankfully you've got family and friends around you to remind you that actually, no, just because you've got a headline doesn't uh, mean that you're different today than you were yesterday. Yeah. You mentioned that name, Mr. Carew. Now, my question to you is, in all the interviews that I hear you, you do, and even just now, you always say Mr. Carew. Is this... in the respect level that you have for him in terms of calling him still Mr. Carew, is that intentional? Um, uh, well, define intentional, I suppose. It, it will always be that way because there is yeah. that, that respect and there is that, that recognition. Um, so, and, and that will absolutely never change. I, I, I don't mm-hmm. even think about it and probably haven't for 30 years, you know, because you get yeah. to the point where, you know, Mr. Carew is Mr. Carew. But, you know, I... Um, as I've got older in life, um, it, it, it has, you know, I, I, I've marvelled at times at just how fortunate I've been to have, you know, role models like him around me. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, um, built his own business and in, in learned to swim, um, but but always had a passion for, um, you know, for swimming and sport and excellence. And and the thing that that you know, I. I, I I was never, I never ceased to be amazed by it. You know, I'd watch this guy, like he had a stroke um, about a year before he died and, you know, he obviously couldn't coach and didn't get to the pool very much after that and was was pretty much bedridden for quite a period of time. And, you know, even when he's bedridden, he's had a stroke and, you know, everybody else is kind of around him feeling, you know, very sad and sorry for things. He, he demanded to watch sport. He wanted to have things on the television. And one, he liked, he enjoyed watching it, but he just never stopped learning. You know, it didn't matter yeah. what he was watching. He was always looking for, for something to learn to make him a better coach, to help him, you know, develop and, and, and create better athletes and better people. And, um, and you know, that, that drive to learn, that willingness to accept that you're not you know, perfect and that there's always things that you can draw out or improve on or um, or um, learn from um, was extraordinary. Um, and, and, you know, that's some of the depth of the respect. Um, I mean, he was my coach for 20 years and I think when you contemplate the environment that we operated in, you know, if you can, if you can have that coach-athlete relationship and both still hold each other with, with great respect, um, Communicate well and continue to perform at at highest levels. Then you know you're doing something pretty right. And um, you know I think um, that that you know that that was that was extraordinarily fortunate for me that he was the person that my my parents sort of put me in touch with as a young athlete to sort of take me on that journey as a coach. And um, you know and I think probably too just the, the last little other part to it. 
it's all a bit like your school teacher as well, though, you know. Um, yeah. those, those, those teachers that you like, that you might see again in, in your future <laughs> life, you know, they, they're still Mr. or Mrs. or Sir or Ma'am. Yeah, you know? sure. Um, <laughs> it, it, it can be an interesting challenge sometimes when they say, no, 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 call me John, and you think, uh, yeah, no, I can't I know what you're that. talking Sorry. about. Yeah. <laughs> Just with Mr. Carew, you know, I know that he helped you when you first met because he was helping you through your rehab when you went through the glass when you were young. A young child, did you ever get a chance to actually ask him what he saw in you in terms of trying to take you to become a champion? Um, uh, look, we talked about it um, sort of later in life, and you know what's interesting to me is that you know he, I mean, he and I had very similar um, you know attitudes to the universe, I suppose, and and you know there's yeah. nature, nurture, environment, all that sort of stuff that you could argue about, but in you know at the end of the day. Um, you know, we did have very similar attitudes, and I, and I think one of the things that um, we both probably held similarly in view was that you know there wasn't ever really um, you know the seminal moment when I was very young where you know we looked at each other and, and you know he said to me you're going to be an Olympian one day um, yeah. because we we had more of the attitude of okay. Um, if you enjoy what you're doing and you're willing to work hard and you want to see how good you can be, then let's work together to continue to improve. And and, and and as you improve and as you grow and as you get better, you know, that leads to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And and, and in some respects it created a bit of an environment where it didn't really matter what level I was competing at or where I was competing, you know, the, the kind of the fundamentals of, of that desire to just be the best that we could be and then learn from it and grow and do better next time meant that we were always able to kind of move forward and, um, you know, and cope and improve and, and get better. Um, I mean, I think the closest that yeah. we probably, probably came to it, I was 15 and, um, I might have just turned 16 actually. And, uh, I, uh, I made the Queensland team. To, so I, I qualified to compete at the Australian Open Championships, which were the Commonwealth Games selections trials for the, um, the Open Commonwealth Games, and um, they, the, the trials were in Adelaide. And I, and I do, and look, and I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, competitive, or I wasn't competitive at that point. You know, my best time, I think I'd just swum coming out of the Age Championships, which is like a 15 minute 45 or something, and I'd improved, you know. 20 or 30 seconds on my previous best time, but um, there was only, uh, you know, uh, a few months between those age championships and the Open Nationals, which were the trials. And, um, and you know, so from that perspective, I wasn't, I certainly wasn't on the radar as somebody who might make the team, but I, I do actually remember having a conversation with him and, and, he, and I asked him, should I go? And he said, look, you know, you've qualified, the state's going to pay for you to go. You may as well give it a run, see what it's like, because you never know. Maybe one day you might want to, you know, take this to that level and see if you can make the Australian team. So why not get yeah. the experience and see what and see what it's like? Um, so you know, we we decided to go and <laughs> made the Australian team at those trials, yeah. and that was that was kind of uh, the the springboard that that it all got very um, you know very serious and successful quickly after that. Yeah, and what what time did you set at the trials? Uh, I swam about a 15, 21 or 22, I think. So, you know, I did take another big chunk off my best time and I came third. Um, wow. Glenn, Glenn Houseman won that race and uh, Michael McKenzie came second. And, you know, I beat, um, you know, guys like Jason Plummer and, and others who were sort of recognised as, as being incumbents. Um, but yeah, I came third and was, uh, 
because I take the top three of the Commonwealth Games, so sort of one of the last to be selected, but it was a, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a surprise. I certainly didn't expect it. Guys, we hope you're enjoying the episode with Kieran Perkins. If you haven't yet, check out some of the other legends that we've had on the show. We've had Michael Klim, Paul Wade, Nathan Sharp, Brad Haddon, David Campisi, Natalie Cook, Jackie Cooper, the list goes on, Mark Ocalupo, Paul Harrigan. We've had some real superstars from across all different sports. So let me know what you think. Send me any feedback at Tristan at TalkingWithTK.com. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe via iTunes. And please, leave me a five-star review. Now back to the show. Yeah, and Glenn Hausman was one of, you know, one of the top dogs, really, when you were coming coming through. When was it that you knew that you could actually match it with him? Um, well, look, I think probably, you know, a year, within a year of that. So we went to the... Um, or the, I should say at, the, at those trials, um, which uh, what Adelaide in sort of late '89, um, Glenn uh, actually broke the world record in the heats. Now he never got credit, credited with the time because uh, the equipment failed, but you know all of us that were there, we saw it and we know he did it. Um, and that was that was just mind blowing for me because a I'd never seen a world record broken before. Um, yeah. This is this is back in the olden days when you know you might only see four or five broken across the world in a year, um, and so you know it was a huge thing to see a world record and to see it in my event in the heats um, yeah. of the championships, and and so that that blew me away. Glenn obviously then went on to win the Commonwealth Games and didn't get the record, but you know got under 15 minutes again, which was a, a hell of a huge mark at the time. Um, and I, I also broke 15 minutes at the, at the, at the games, um, coming second to Glenn. And, um, you know, we had the world championships in sort of first in January the next year. And by the time the trials came around, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I guess Glenn, he probably beat me by say three, three seconds or so at the Commonwealth games. And, yep. um, you know, by the, when you get that close and you're younger and you're sort of improving all the time, I mean, I knew I knew I was in with a shot. Um, mm. And we had the trials um, for those those world championships, and I I managed to beat Glenn then. So, well, wow. actually, one of the questions I really wanted to ask you because over the weekend, last weekend, I watched Manny Pacquiao versus Jeff Horn, and obviously, you've got the young bull yeah. versus the the old bull. You know, something similar happened mm. to you when, when Grant Hackett came on the scene in year 2000 when he was a young bull and you were about seven or eight years older than him so you're coming towards the end of your career. Especially in swimming, you don't have a long shelf life yeah. at all. So in terms of your approach in year 2000 when you knew that Grant was coming on and he was younger than you, he was probably stronger than you, you're probably in a situation, he was probably you back in 1992. How do you prepare for that? Um, <laughs> well, look, you don't really, and, and, and this is this is kind of one of those interesting things that um, I'm not sure I ever do a really great job of articulating because I, I, people don't generally believe me. But um, yeah, you know, I, I can say I can say with all honesty that I went through my entire swimming career never feeling like I had this deep rivalry with anybody because mm. you know, in, in 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 my in my time as a junior. Um, 
you know, as a very young athlete, I was in, I was really unsuccessful. Like I didn't win age group championships and junior school championships and all that. And you know, I, I was I was always very poor at, at uh, ball sports and running sports and all the sort of stuff that you play when you're a young kid. So for me. To be honest, by and large, sport wasn't a very enjoyable experience and I didn't like it very much because, you know, there's only so much um, failure and rejection you can take before you decide that something yeah, else is going to be yeah. more interesting to do. Um, and the thing that I loved about swimming was that it, it provided an environment where, um, you know, first and foremost, your biggest competitor was yourself. You know, you, you, mm. you had to get your potential out of yourself in that racing environment and, and the training that you do and the work that you do enables you to kind of, keep improving and growing and, and seeing how good you can get. And I think, you know, as I went through my swimming career, there was different guys that I was racing all of the time. And, and, and don't get me wrong, I was absolutely aware of them and very cognizant of, um, of you know, their, their strengths and weaknesses and the, the things that I have to contend with. But, you know, if you approach a racing situation where um, the only consequence that you face is that failure is measured by your... Um, by how much less than your very best you've done, then winning or losing sort of becomes relatively secondary. You know, you, you, you touch the wall and you look at the scoreboard and you see the time that you've done. Um, and when you sort of step away from it, you look yourself in the mirror after it's all over and go, did I do my best today? Is there absolutely anything I could have done better or that I should have yeah. done better? And if the answer is no, then, you know, it doesn't matter if you come first or last, you've won. You know, you've done absolutely the best that you can do. And the, and you know, the, the, the upside psychological challenge or, sorry, benefit with that is that it doesn't matter whether you are actually trying to break world records and win Olympic gold medals or you're trying to make a final or you're just trying to win a, you know, race at a state championship. Your, um, your focus and your attention and your energy and your, you know, mental um, capacity, toughness, resilience, focus, whatever you want to call it, um, is all centred around how you actually get the absolute best out of yourself. And, um, mm. you know, I think where my competitors had impact, the biggest impact on me was actually in a training environment. Um, we used to do a lot of training camps and things where you'd come together and for, you know, a, a week or two at a time over the course of a year, you'd, um, you'd train against this person and the... And I mean, some of the stuff we used to do in training was just insane because you've got these guys who are pretty damn good at what they do, pushing and yeah. fighting and working with each other and against each other in that environment. Um, and, you know, that, that was probably more of a place where I, I noticed it. But by the time the races came around, you know, there was just seven other human beings on the blocks beside me and I was as interested in each of them um, equally, which was to say not too worried because I wanted to do my best. Um, and then look, having and then of course, you know that. So that's the competitive attitude I took. Um, to, to, to sort of probably more directly answer your question, um, you know, there's no doubt when you you get to that point in your career where you know you're um, challenged um, because you get you're getting older, you're not recovering like you used to, your your body's just not you know um, delivering the way that it always did. Um, you've got to change the way you train and compete and um, and the work that you do and. and and I think sort of going through the 97, 98 period especially, um, I knew I couldn't beat Grant and I had no, no desire to beat Grant because mm. he was at it, he was at his best and on the rise. I was the old guy trying to come back after, you know, a big breakup from Atlanta. <laughs> I took nine months off, which was 
idiot, which was, yeah, was completely idiotic. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, given given my time and space again, you know, you'd never take that sort of time off. So you become so unfit that you're really starting from scratch, and it does take you a long time to, you know, like years to get fit again. But but I knew that, so you know, for that period during those years when I was coming back and and sort of you know working my way back towards top form. Um, you know, I wasn't I wasn't worried about it. I, I, I knew that um, the beating Grant just wasn't going to be a, a, an opportunity at that time. But certainly by the time I got to Sydney, um, I believed I, I could win and I believed I would win. Um, and, you know, I think that's the thing that, um, you know, every Olympic gold medalist has when they stand on the blocks an absolute belief that they will win. Because um, if you don't believe it, you've got no chance. Uh, and then the thing that you have to ask yourself after the race is over is, did I do my best? If you did, then, you know, you're happy. And if you didn't, you're unhappy. Um, yeah. And the, the time and the, the, the placing you've come become secondary after that. Yeah. Kieran, were you good at celebrating wins? Um, look, it depended. The Olympic ones, yes. And that was, that was because, you know, the Olympics really was an incredible um, environment. You know, I, I think... Every swimmer will tell you that the most important thing that you can ever do in your swimming career is win an Olympic gold medal. Um, world records and things are interesting and, and great to do, but you know they will be broken, whereas you, you will forever be an Olympic champion. Um, and so with that comes an enormous amount of pressure. It's such an amazing environment to be in the village and part of that big multi-sport event and all that sort of thing. And, and it is an end point. You know, we do measure our kind of competitive cycles in those four-year blocks around the Olympics. So after the Olympics, there was always a stop point where you've sort of achieved your your cycle. And, you know, I, I, um, I used to celebrate, uh, celebrate then and enjoy it, but um, most of the other events and things, no, not really, because you, you sort of be back in training the next day, um, you know, working your way towards whatever the next meet was. Yeah, I know your major goal was to swim in three consecutive Olympic Games and win gold in each one at that same event. In terms of breaking it down between those four years, did you have like little goals in between? Um, oh, look, you, you, you've always got the next, the next meet, right? So, um, um, you know, back, back when I swam, the um, Commonwealth Olympics and World Championships were every four years and the um, Pampasive Games were every two, so you'd sort of go Commonwealth, Pampax, Worlds, Pampax, Olympics. And um, and each of those meets was kind of a big inflection point. So, you know, you're always preparing for and getting ready for and working towards those meets. Um, so, you know, that was yeah, that was always the the um, you know the work uh, work on the way through. Okay, Kieran, I've got a couple of personality questions just to wrap up the interview, the first one is, what was your favourite race venue? Uh, the, uh, the, the Olympic pool in Rome. So there's a, a pool that they built for the 1964, was it? 60, 64, whatever Rome was, uh, Olympic yeah. Games. And, and, it's, and it's, just, it's like it's an old pool, um, obviously, but it's fast. You know, there's just something about yeah. the water, something about that pool. It just, I, I, I always... Well, no, actually, as I always say, well, there. I actually did my slowest ever competitive 1500 there as well because I was sick once. But generally speaking, I, I always <laughs> went really fast. And it had this amazing tunnel that um, 
they they brought it up for the for the Olympics, but it used to actually be a um, um, like a little canal that you could swim from there into this indoor pool that Mussolini had built for himself, which um, had an indoor diving tower. And there's just these mosaics all over the walls, and it's just—I mean, it's just fantastic. And it's you know, it's in the middle of Rome, and um, so yeah, that that the pool in Rome was absolutely my favourite. I used to love love racing there. All right, is there something you know aside from sleeping and eating that you love to do every day? As an athlete? No, just a, maybe a success habit or something, maybe a morning routine that you do. Is there anything in particular that you do every single day? <laughs> oh, look, the only thing that I do every single day now nowadays is um, I have a daily challenge on solitaire that I play. Um, <laughs> a little little thing to wake me up because I'm an awful morning person, absolutely horrific. Never liked it, never been good at it, and still hate it. Anyway, <laughs> there you go. That's uh, one of the weird weird things about being a swimmer. Um, but you know, look, I think one of the things that I absolutely know that. Um, is incredibly valuable. I don't do it every day because I'm not I'm not disciplined enough around it. But it is actually just taking taking some time out to um, meditate is the closest word I can come to. I don't meditate yeah. in inverted commas, um, but mm-hmm. just just taking out that time to sort of stop and breathe and clear your mind and actually um, you know just build some clarity and space. You know, everything's so busy and fast and noisy and yeah. active in our universes these days that um, just being able to stop for a second and actually, um, you know, just clear yourself uh, is really valuable. My, my favourite way to do it is actually to go motorbike riding. I, I, oh, wow. One of my bad habits, I suppose, is uh, riding the motorbike. And, you know, the helmet goes on and then once you're out in the mountains, you just, you're in the zone, right? The, the the road in front of you is all that there is, and everything else out around you, and all of your problems and everything else that's happening just evaporates, and you become focused on the road and focused on what you're doing. And you know that's that's one of my all-time favourite kind of meditative kinds of states. But um, even at work and things, I try every now and again to just sort of stop and look out the window for a second and take a breath, just yeah. to just create some space. What sort of bike do you have? Uh, BMW K1300S. Ooh, nice one. Yeah. All right, next question is, I'm going to take you back to your childhood. Kieran, what posters did you have on your childhood wall growing up? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Wendy Matthews. I had a transmission band phase there for a while. Um, uh, But... um, yeah, that's a good question. Probably just those sorts of popular things. I was into music. Um, the one thing I did actually have, which um, um, was something that my dad sort of printed out and framed for me, um, there's, a, there's a poem by, a very old poem, um, by a gentleman, Walter D. Winsel, called Thinking. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's something that I always did have on my wall when I was young and something that I often used to read and it's uh, kind of encapsulated, uh, I guess, my you know, focus on uh, the importance of, um, of effort and trying your best and, and persistence, which, which I absolutely loved. So, yeah, Thinking by Walter D. Wintle. Well, I'll have to look that one up, definitely. All right, Kieran, last question. You're going to be hosting a private dinner party. You've got five invites. Now, the only rules, no family or friends, but you can invite yep. anyone dead or alive. Who are you inviting? 
Uh, I can answer a couple of these really quickly because my wife and I talk about this every now and again just for fun. <laughs> um, so Val- Valentino Rossi, because I'm a motorsport nut oh, yes, and I absolutely nice. love the bikes and love Val- Um Anthony Bourdain, uh, he's yeah, a, nice. a, a like chef him. and travel blogger. Yeah, yep. yeah, in- interesting and entertaining guy. Um, good, in the same job. vein, um, yeah, yeah, and, and he'd, be, he'd, he'd certainly be challenging, I think. But um, um, Rick Stein is another one that I actually put into that category. I don't know if you've watched any of his shows, I mean, he's a chef and he does a travelogue stuff. But he's got a he's got a love of um, uh, of, of old um, literature and, and, okay. and literary thought, and the you know the, the things that he brings out when he's when he's talking about places and times and food and, and things like that. I really um, I really enjoy as well. Um, not to not to sort of turn it into a political thing because uh, it, it's it's not necessarily indicative of what my political views <laughs> might be, but I, I do I do absolutely um, think that uh, uh, Barack Obama would be incredibly interesting oh, to have um, yeah. to have in, in, in a time and place to talk um, to. And uh, I think the other the other ones for me um, may and um, I know that this would take me up to six, but I'll, I'll let you choose. I can't decide which one either either um, Stephen Colbert or John Stewart. I, 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 I enjoy yeah, I enjoy this this satirical view on the universe, and um, I think um, Stephen's probably funnier, and John's a little bit more intellectually challenging. So I don't know which way you want to take that, but. Uh, there's uh there's some there's some interesting ones anyway. There's, there's always a lot more. I'll give you six, Kieran, because you inspired me as a youngster. I'll give you six, buddy. <laughs> thank you, <laughs> Kieran. Kieran Perkins, I really want to just thank you for coming on. Like I said, you inspired me a, a hell of a lot when I was growing up, and to chat to you today, it's it's been an honour, man. So thank you so much. Much appreciated. Thank you. Guys, we hope you enjoyed the episode with Kieran Perkins. It was a special one for me, someone that I've idolized growing up. So I hope you really got something out of that. Next on the show, I've got Wallabies number 12, Carmichael Hunt. So we've had a few rugby players on with Sharpie and Campo. So another enjoyable one. He's a three-code sports uh, professional. One of the only ones to do it here, him and Israel Folau. Uh, pretty much the only ones that have done it successfully. Carmichael, especially when I was growing up, is around the same age as I am. So he's someone that, you know, I've respected for a long, long time. You know, that aggressive style that he's got. And, you know, he really just represents his country and club with, you know, such vigor and pride, mate. So I'm really looking forward to speaking to Carmichael. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or or if you're an Android user, please check out the show at www.talkingwithtk.com. If you want to connect with me, I'm on Facebook. I'm at Tristan Cannell, or the the Facebook page is Tristan. Uh, sorry, Talking With TK. Instagram, I'm Tristan Cannell, or Twitter, I'm T. Nell Fitness. But until next time, I'm Tristan Cannell, and this was Talking With TK.